0: This episode contains graphic details of murder and other crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Everyone and welcome back to Not Always Polite. I hope you guys have had a great week so far. Today I have an interesting case that some of you may have heard of, maybe not. Um, I did not hear about this case and I say this all the time but I don't know how I miss these cases. They're very highly publicized here in Ontario and I'm not sure if it's because like I don't watch the news or what it is but I had never heard of this case until I started researching it, so today we're going to be talking about the mysterious death of Alora Wells, and this case does talk about, um, like drug use, homelessness, and, um, a lot about trans rights, so if any of those are triggering or sensitive topics, along with murder, obviously, um, this might not be the episode for you, and I totally understand, but those are just some additional trigger warnings to my normal one, so... Yeah, so let's, I guess, just go ahead and get on into the episode The Mysterious Death of Alora Wells. So, Alora Wells, also known as Alora Hennessy and Alora Wheeler, was born in 1989 or 1990 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Alora was the third of four children in a mixed race family. Her childhood was not ideal, and the family struggled financially and relied on the income of her mother, Mary who worked as a manager at Tim Hortons. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I mean, everyone probably knows, but whatever. Tim's is a coffee shop here in Canada. And her father, Mike, and they just listed that he was a laborer. Alora was enrolled in a specialized drama program at Wexford Collegiate Institute for the Arts. And she came out to her family as transgender when she was 18. And by all accounts, they were very supportive of her transition. As a teenager, she would disappear for periods of time, often going downtown where she was caught trying to sneak into bars in the Church and Wellesley neighborhood, which is Toronto's gay village. Um, she befriended drag performers and would ask them questions about dressing up and how to like get glam, which I think is so cute. Around 2012, she signed up for the Ontario Works Income Support Program and rented an apartment in Scarborough near her sister. In February of 2013, her mother died, and this kind of led to the family, like, to break up, break apart. Um, her father and her older brother also became homeless, and Alora was evicted from her apartment. From to- the time of her eviction, she basically lived in a tent in the Rosedale Ravine Lands Park in Toronto. In 2015, Alora was found sleeping on her sister's doorstep. She was described as disheveled and almost unrecognizable. She had many friends, according to Monica Forrester, who is a transgender and sex work activist. She described her as, quote, a staple of the community. According to Monica, Alora had fallen on hard times and could not afford housing, and that's why she was living under a bridge in the park. Alora had served short jail-term sentences at Veneer Center for Women, which her father believed were for theft and breaking and entering. Her father said that she had been engaging in sex work and had turned down offers to stay at his apartment. Friends of Alora's clarified that she would occasionally engage in survival sex work when necessary, but not just like because she wanted to. She did it to survive. She and her father had last spoken in March of 2017. Alora was in a romantic relationship with a man called Agustinus Bezeldent. Sorry, Agustinus, I probably butchered that, but... He was the only boyfriend that she had introduced her father to, however, he described their relationship as tumultuous and was marked with um, use of intravenous drugs, so they definitely weren't good for each other's sobriety, but... Anyways, her Facebook account was under the name Alora Hennessy and it stopped like she went dormant on there after the twenty-sixth of July twenty seventeen. One of the last two posts, she the first one expressed her pride in her younger brother's military service, and then the second one said, quote, is wondering what happened to me, life, love, loss. It's too much to handle right now. End quote. On August 5th, 2017, a woman named Rebecca Price and a friend discovered a dead woman's body in Rosedale Ravine Lands Park in Midtown Toronto. She informed the Toronto Police Service and an on-scene investigation was conducted by the 53rd Division investigators and the coroner. The body was found beside a tent with drug paraphernalia, but no identification. The body was fully dressed in women's clothing and was found with a blonde wig and a purse. There was, again, no identification, and there was no indication of foul play. An autopsy was unable to determine the cause of death or race, though the coroner determined that the woman was transgender. The body was badly decomposed with the time of death, estimated about two or three weeks before it was discovered. The Toronto Police Service did not issue a news release when the body was found, which is standard procedure. According to spokesperson Megan Gray, there were no details that could be released, and investigators worked to establish more information so that they could appeal to the public for assistance in identification. Rebecca spoke with a detective several times, but realized little progress was being made. Learning that the woman was transgender from the detective, Rebecca searched on the internet for transgender advocacy organizations and contacted the 519 Community Center in Church and Wellesley on August 17th on August 25th the 519 informed Rebecca that staff would investigate and follow up with the police it was later revealed however that the staff only reviewed police news releases and when they found no mention of an unidentified body they did not contact the police or any other agency so they dropped the ball obviously in mid-August the Toronto Police Service sent out a bulletin to other police services not to the public, but other police departments. The Ontario Provincial Police alerted the Toronto Police Service to a missing transgender person from Northern Ontario, but the age of that missing person didn't match with the body discovered in Toronto. Another case from Alberta was closer in age, but was ruled out by DNA testing. At the beginning of August, Maggie's, a Toronto Sex Workers Action Project, an advocacy group that, um, monica worked with was in touch with alora's family so alora's family was concerned that she had stopped posting on facebook monica contacted the veneer center for women and learned they had a prisoner named wheeler which she thought was her surname and assumed she was safe like i said before alora had gone by a couple different last names so um, in late october or early november monica checked again with the veneer center and learned that alora had not been in prison that summer Monica informed her father, and later his other daughter, informed him that Alora was not in a drug rehab center like he had thought. Her father then filed a missing persons report with the police on November 6th, four months after she had disappeared. He reported her missing to the 51st Division, which covered Church and Wellesley. On November 8th, the Toronto Police Service issued a news release of Alora's disappearance with two photographs of her. The officers returned to the ravine on November 9th and November 10th to search for Laura. Rebecca then learned of her disappearance after Maggie's alerted the media and they were both shocked that neither the Toronto Police Service or the 519 had contacted Maggie's or other social agencies that were working in the area. Now the police did see similarities between the missing persons report and the body that were found in the ravine and they got a DNA sample from a family member to test. On November 11th, Maggie's organized a search of the ravine and along Bloor Street East where Alora was often seen. Her body was not easily identifiable and required months of forensic work with DNA testing by the Ontario Centre of Forensic Sciences. After that, they were able to positively identify Alora on November 23rd. The police were then looking for her boyfriend, but he was transient and they did believe that he was the last person to see her in July and was identified as a person of interest. Again, Augustinas was a transient in his late 20s or early 30s at the time of her death. On November 19th, members of Trans Pride Toronto and Maggie's organized a vigil for the then identified transgender woman at Barbara Hall Park in Church in Wellesley. Following the vigil, approximately 100 people marched to the Toronto Police Service headquarters and demanded accountability public memorial was held for Alora in the second week of December. On December 12, 2017, the Ontario Legislature enacted a law that November 20th would be observed as Annual Transgender Day of Remembrance, requiring a minute of silence in the legislature. OPP, uh, OPP <laughs> MPP Sherry Denovo, who introduced the private members bill in 2016, said that the legislation would be in memorial to Alora Wells. Now, obviously, the Toronto Police Service and the 519 both were under a lot of scrutiny for this case and how it was handled. So basically, the Toronto Police Service receives over 4,000 missing person reports each year, but they are facing staffing shortages of frontline officers and an anonymous sergeant described them as, quote, dangerously low. Mark Mendelson, a former Toronto Police Service homicide detective, stated that the circumstances surrounding a disappearance determine the priority of a missing persons case. Whether uniformed officers become involved in a physical search depends on whether police suspect foul play, noting that it is, quote, a big step to begin a search, especially for an adult. Now, Alora's father alleged that the Toronto Police Service told him that the case was, quote, not high priority when he reported Alora missing, giving her lifestyle. She was homeless. Toronto Police Service Detective Barry Redford noted that homelessness raised concerns of where to begin a search, the reliability of information regarding the person's last known whereabouts, and factors such as whether the person's mental state, history, and health. Now, Obviously, it's harder to search for someone when they don't have a last known location, but this was still obviously handled horribly. So, on November 11th, Monica criticized the Toronto Police Service for overlooking Alora's disappearance. Friends of Alora's also criticized the Toronto Police Service for not publicizing information about the discovery of her body earlier. There has been a growing shift in policy across Canadian police forces to not release details about deaths and murders in response to new privacy laws that require police to, quote, protect the privacy and rights of victims and their families. However, members of the public and other Canadian police forces are chastised for these policies. So, there were allegations against the 519 as well. Their main allegations were that the 519 was prejudiced against transgender women, the poor, and the homeless. They cited the 519's mishandling of the report of Elora's body and redevelopment of plans for more Moss Park that would displace low-income and homeless. The petitioners also alleged that the 519 had contributed to tensions by discouraging sex workers and homeless people from that area. That and the 519 had a, quote, ban list largely made up of mentally ill or developmentally disabled racialized people. Staff disputed these allegations and the 519 board of directors supported the organization while engaging in an independent review of the petition's concerns. I guess, to summarize, they made November 20th um, National Trans Remembrance Day and just kind of said, like, that's good enough. We still don't know who killed Alora, how she died, if it was a drug overdose or what happened. But, yeah. So, that's the case of Alora Wells. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at notalwayspolite. And I will catch you guys in the next one. Bye, guys.